lives. And uh, let's just read the text together. It's fairly short. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. There we go. And whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body washed away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, and my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity. I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely the flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you. This is God speaking here in verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be the horse or as the mule, which has no understanding, whose trappings include the bit and the bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. We're going to unpack this in a minute, but I'd ask that you pray with me before we begin. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this word in the psalm that is simple, yet profound. That is a reality and truth of what our sin and unwillingness to let it go and to confess it does to us. And what the reality of your grace and mercy poured upon us does in us and through us. And to us, I pray this morning that as we bring this word, those things, as always, which are from you, are driven deep in our hearts, that we'd remember them, we'd live by them, we'd be changed by them. And Father, that is which uh, is of my flesh, that it would not be remembered at all, that it would not even be heard by the power of your Spirit. May you bless this time in the word. Amen. Unpacking it now, verses 1-2, there's about five sections in this, in this chapter, in this psalm. The first section is somewhat of a benediction. And this benediction, he says, How blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered, and how blessed is a man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. My mind uh, immediately went to Matthew chapter 5 and the words of Jesus. When I heard this in the psalm, one thing that had really occurred to me is this. In the Bible, something I've been discovering even at a more deeper level year after year after year is everything that's in here is the same message told a thousand different ways. And it's all about God's love for us and his provision for us and his way for us. 
And he said it in the Psalms, and he said it in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reality of that message is this. Blessed is the person who understands that in and of themselves they have no hope, no power, not enough good works for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing that he can do. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that you can do to earn your way into heaven. Blessed is that person that understands that they are hopeless without Christ because then Christ is the only place you can go. And when you go there, you receive salvation. Happy is that person. Blessed are those who understand the depravity of their spirit apart from Christ, knowing that they have no hope and are in need of a Savior. And happy is the one who knows his need for Jesus, asks forgiveness for sins, and receives it. That's the happy person. That's the blessed person. Charles Spurgeon, he talked of blessedness this way. Blessedness is not in this case ascribed to a man who has been a diligent law keeper. Hear this. The one who keeps the law diligently follows all of the rules and believes by following all those rules they will be saved. That is not the blessed person. He continues, For then it would never come to us, but rather to the lawbreaker who by grace, most rich and free, has been forgiven. Blessed is that person. Blessed is the person who understands they don't have it all together. Blessed is the person who is tired of performance-based religion and just says, Jesus, I'm here, and all my messiness, I'm here, and I need you. That person is blessed. So in that spirit, we're going to take a look at David's testimony in verses 3 through 5. This is his own sin and God's dealing with him. First, let's look at verses 3 and 4. He said this, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as a fever heat of summer. What we're being shown here is that there is a destruction in silence. For us to harbor our sin, for us to hold it back, it's a destructive quality, it's a destructive practice in our lives. And David realized this. So we become or may become physically, spiritually, and emotionally paralyzed. Have you ever been there? where you know that you've been sinning, where you know you've been choosing the wrong thing. And by the way, this isn't just for those of you who are here who haven't chosen Christ. This is for those of us who are believers. Understand, David is a man after God's own heart. He's a man after God's own heart who is struggling in his relationship because of his sin. He's struggling with it. And he knows he's being convicted by the Holy Spirit. He knows that he needs to change his life by the power of God, and the power of God is his only hope. This isn't just for the unbeliever. This is for us, beloved. And when we harbor that sin, have you ever been to the place where you couldn't sleep? 
You couldn't sleep at all. Sometimes you couldn't move. It's almost like you're in this catatonic state. Even if you go to work, it doesn't even feel like you're there. Because the heavy weight and the oppression of unconfessed sin has rendered you impotent. I made the mistake in the first service of saying, I hope I'm not the only one that's ever been in that place, and that's wrong. I hope nobody else is in that place. You know, I hope we're not in that place, but brothers and sisters, I've been there. I've been there. And I don't think I'm alone there either. The second piece here is that the Holy Spirit convicts our spirit. And a lot of times we feel like I'm not going to think about my sin. I'm not going to talk about my sin. I'm not going to deal with it because I don't want to feel the way the Holy Spirit makes me feel. I don't want to feel guilty. And what we don't understand is that conviction is a gift. He's saying deal with it so that you can be free from it. Deal with it so you don't have the weight of it anymore. No longer remain silent. Confess that sin, get rid of it, become right with the Lord in that, and walk in freedom. It's a gift. Yet we fail to realize that, and we run sometimes headlong into sin, and we embrace it. Why? Why do we do that? Well, I think Francis Chan, he had a sermon in um, Jeremiah chapter 2. I have a short excerpt from that, and I'd like you to give it a listen. I think he's answered that question quite well. Jeremiah chapter 2. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me. You followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Remember, this is God speaking. And sometimes we think of God as like this machine up there, this, you know, with no feeling. He just judges. He just controls everything. You guys, listen to the words he uses. God is speaking to this nation and he says, I remember how devoted you were to me. But then he says in in verse 5, What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? Doesn't that sound like so many of our lives? Where we were so connected with God, God made things so wonderful, and then we run away towards something else. Something else entices us, and God's left there going, what did I do? My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The people committed two sins. One was they chose their sin. But I think what really broke the heart of God was that they chose their sin over Him. God's going, wait a second. So you left me, the spring of living water, to go do your own thing because you thought maybe you could dig a hole big enough and then fill it up with water so this would be a better supply? He goes, and it's a broken cistern. It doesn't even hold water. That's what temptation is things that draw us away from him, things that we choose over a love relationship. And it's not that you don't love God. You love God, right? 
I mean, you love God in your heart, but every once in a while there's this reality of there's this real pull from inside of you towards something that God prohibits. And you're feeling it so bad, and you're going, what is wrong with me? I know I love God. Why do I feel this way? We're going, God, I don't want to go there. And we know it's not going to fulfill. We know we can't be happy outside of God. But everything in us is pulling us that way. What do we do? Here's what we do. The Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He says, set your mind on things above, not earthly things. It's the idea of a person being so focused on this love relationship, you're not even noticing anything else. You don't know what else is going on in the room. You're just so focused on Jesus, so in love and so thinking about eternal things. That's the idea. We have to run toward Jesus, the author and perfecter. We have to fix our eyes on him so that all these things are dangling in front of our face, but we don't even notice it. There's one reason why you should walk away from whatever temptation you're facing right now. There's just one reason. God is better. He is. He's so much better. It's not even a comparison. God is better. We fail to see that. When we embrace sin, when we run toward it, when we choose it, we fail to remember that God is better. He wants what's best for us, and what's best for us is Him. And David got it. Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me of the guilt. He got it. He understood that what God had for him was better. He understood that what he was running after, what he was chasing after, was less. And he said, God, I'm done striving. I'm done trying to do this on my own. The next section is our response, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in time when you may be found. Surely in the flood of great waters, they will not reach him. It reminded me when I read this of a story, the illustration that's been told for decades, um, for as long as helicopters have been around probably. But you, you heard the story of this community that is flooding. It's beginning to flood. And um, the owner of the house, he gets up on top of his house and he starts to pray, you know, God save me. I'm going to trust you to save me. And and um, as the, the streets are, are starting to fill up, the cars, the last cars are starting to drive through and the sheriff comes and, and he says, come on, I'll take you to safety. He says, no, God is going to save me. And, and so the sheriff leaves because he won't leave. And then the waters are rising and the motorboat comes. Right? The fishing boat comes along and says, jump on in, I'll take you to safety. He says, no, that's okay, I've prayed God is going to save me. And 
and then uh, the water has reached the roof line and and a helicopter comes and they tell him over the loudspeaker, come on, uh, we'll take you to safety. He says, no, God is going to save me. And the waters rise and the guy drowns. And he goes to God and he says, I thought you were going to save me. And he said, I sent you a sheriff, a boat, and a helicopter. What's your problem? The floodwaters won't reach us if we listen. The godly will pray in their time of need and they'll be found and the waters will not reach them and we have to be looking to see what God is providing. Verse 7, David acknowledges this and he implores us to as well. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. Sorry, there you go. You surround me with songs of deliverance. So let's look at this comparison between the state of silence, this destruction of silence, and a life of confession. A life of getting out here what's going on in here. A life of silence. The body is wasted away. We're paralyzed. We're shut down. We have a heavy weight. We can't seem to move. A life of playing the hiding game renders us impotent. But a life of confession gives our body restoration. A life of silence, we have heavy conviction, which while it's a gift, is not much fun. But a life of confession, we're preserved from trouble. And I want you to understand this. This does not mean that if you come to Christ that in this world you won't have trouble. Why? Because the Bible says you will. In this life you will have trouble, right? We're taught about sorrow and suffering all over the place in Scripture. Coming to Christ doesn't mean that it will be roses and, I don't know, peaches and cream forever. Coming to Christ means an enemy who is active with an army of the demonic is going to come up against you and make life really hard. The difference is, will you rely on Christ to walk you through it? The trouble doesn't mean you won't have marriage trouble, you won't have financial trouble, you won't have physical trouble. The trouble means this. You won't have to deal with the heaviness of conviction. You can walk in the freedom of knowing that you're walking right with the Lord. You won't have the trouble of being physically, emotionally, or spiritually paralyzed because you've kept a short account with the Lord. We're preserved from that trouble. The destruction of silence, a life of silence, means our vitality is drained. Our life is drained. We feel dead inside. But a life of confession brings deliverance. There really is no comparison, is there? If I put rotten fruit in this hand and fresh fruit in this hand, which would you choose, death or life? That is really what God's put before you this morning. By the way, beloved, those of us who are in Christ, that's before us all the time because the enemy is bringing temptation to us at every turn. And we have to start seeing the rotten fruit for what it really is. Choose a life of confession. 
You see, a lot of times we don't want to do that because we think we look at the law and we think it's a bunch of rules for us to follow and we don't see it as all kinds of grace that God is lavishing upon us so that we might walk in the freedom and reality of Christ crucified and risen again in power. Everything about the law of God points us to our need for him because God is better. Everything points to him because he's better. The next section in verses 8 and 9, we have a shift. This is God talking. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. There's some realities in this one little verse that are seriously comforting to me. The first is this. You're not alone. You are not alone. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of the living God abiding in you. You are not alone. Secondly, you're not alone because you have the body of Christ that gathers here. And I hope this is not the only place we gather as the body of Christ. I hope it's not just once a week. I hope that your community groups are alive and thriving and you're loving one another with the love of Christ out in a world that needs to see him. Second, verse 8, you're not powerless. That same spirit that lives within you, that makes sure that you're not alone, is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And are we really going to stand before God and say, you know, God, I'd like you to take care of this, but I don't know if you can. Oh, yeah, that is right. You raised Jesus from the dead, defeated death and sin. Maybe you can take care of this. We aren't powerless. We need to start walking in a way in the kingdom of God that says, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I'll stop thinking that I'm limited by my own humanness and watch you work in power and do things that I could never imagine. Can we do that? Can we do that as the body of Christ? Can we step out of our little box that says, this is how Christianity looks, and this is my life, and I have my job, and I have my family, and I do my faith, and I I really do love God. But can we not make that box the focus and step out here into the kingdom and say, God, what is it that you want me to do? How can I champion you? How can I be a part of increasing your renown in Itasca County? How can when people meet me, view God as bigger and not smaller for having encountered the Spirit of God that is within me? We're not powerless. You are protected. Again, that doesn't mean that hard stuff isn't going to happen. But in the end, in eternity, we're protected from the consequences of our sin because of the blood of Jesus. Amazing grace. Last, you're not expected to do anything that God won't equip you to do. What's he asking of you? Have you asked that question lately? What is he asking of you? Has the answer been, I don't have enough time? 
or I don't know how to do it. God, I can't do that. Are you kidding me? I can't, I can't do that. And God looks at us, and I think he says, I know. You know, and, and, and he said it ever since the beginning of time, I think. We, we get to this place where Israel is supposed to cross into the Jordan, right? And he says, you got to cross the Jordan River. Now, this isn't the Jordan River. That's a nice little creek and a peaceful, um, peaceful little river that you can walk across at this time of the year. This is during the rainy season. We have flood stage waters. And he says, you need to take that step into the Jordan, and I will take care of the rest. And not until those priests took the first step with the Ark of the Covenant did the waters part and did God provide the way. What is he asking you to do? Where is he asking you to go? Who is he asking you to serve? What's the raging Jordan in front of you that's keeping you from taking that faithful step? It all starts with the step. And he provides the way. He equips you. He makes sure that you can do whatever it is that you need to do. How have I seen that in my own life? My worst class in high school was speech. said I'd never be a public speaker. <laughs> I also said I'd never be a pastor. <laughs> Tell you what, God has plans. What's he asking you to do? Are you willing to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? Are you willing to set aside the box that says, I have to work 90 hours a week and collect $3.5 million so that I can retire at age 60 and spend the rest of my life collecting seashells somewhere? I'm not saying everybody needs to be a pastor. I'm saying whatever it is you do, God's calling you to something. He's calling you to live your life in such a way that the kingdom is increased. And in all of this, please, don't see me shaking my finger at you. (laughs) Hear me pleading with you. Because this is what I've had to wrestle with my entire Christian life. And I don't think I'm alone. He's got something better for you. Verse 9. Do not be like the horse or as a mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include the bit and the bridle and hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. He's saying this, don't force me to put the bit in your mouth. I want you to run like a free-range horse (laughs) in the love and the grace and the freedom from sin that only Christ can provide. Don't, ask, don't act as if we are devoid of understanding. Seek wise counsel and be ready to run wherever wisdom points us. Can, can you sense it? Can, can you really sense where God wants to take you? but you've been afraid to go. Take the faithful step. Charles Spurgeon on on this particular verse said this. 
It is much to be deplored that we so often need to be so severely chastened before we will obey. Let's keep our accounts short. Let's live a life of confession instead of silence and walk in the freedom of obedience. And, and it, it came back to me that you know Ken has been preaching for three years off and on about what sin is. And these are the four things that he's taught. And I'm eternally grateful for what I've learned from him on this. We all know that sin is what we do. It's a moral act. We get that. Most of us acknowledge that. Some people are arguing that some of the things they do aren't sin. The problem is, if it's in this book and it says it's sin, I don't care what man says. Sin is sin. It's what we do. But deeper than that, it's what we think. Jesus came along and, and he said, if you, if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder already. You're already guilty of that. So it's not just what we do, it's what we think. And some of us are okay letting that in, but even deeper, it's believing we have the authority to determine what's right and wrong. And that started with Adam and Eve saying, yeah, I don't think God can really tell me that. It'll be okay. I'm going to do this. And the rest has been history. Or it really comes down to is this idea of self-love. And some people say, I don't love myself, I loathe myself. So I'm certainly not guilty of that. And I would argue this. In these four different levels of sin, here's the deal. Anytime that we are so wrapped up in ourselves that we loathe ourselves, who are we not focusing on? God. It's idolatry. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 said this, You shall have no other gods before me. Why did God make that the first commandment? I wish there was a parenthesis there that said this, and by the way, the number one idol you're going to have to fight against is yourself. You've got to fight against choosing yourself. Who wants to walk in freedom from that? The result, what does this lead to? Verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy all of you who are upright in heart. You see, there are only two options this morning. There will be two options tomorrow and the day after that, and the day after that, and every day until Christ returns, you have two options. You can either be in the category of those who reject God, and that category is called the wicked, or in the category of those who receive God, and that category is the redeemed. You can be in the category of those who live in this destruction of silence, or you can be in the group of people who live the life of confession. Let's stop playing the hiding game. Let's start receiving his grace and living in it moment by moment. You see, the first group 
You choose yourself and bear the character and consequences of the wicked, which is deep and continual sorrow. I've had conversations with people who don't believe God exists, and the conversations have went like this. You believe because I do X, Y, or Z, pick your favorite sin, that I am going to hell. And I say, no, I believe you're going to hell because you don't know Jesus. And you refuse to know Jesus. And I want you to understand, I take no pleasure in knowing that. It ought to break our hearts. We know those who don't know Jesus. I think I might have shared this with you once before, but um, Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller, comedian, um, devout atheist, he, he said this in one of his video blogs um, about Christians, of which most of them he doesn't like. But every once in a while he runs into somebody who is genuine, sad testament, but that's his words. And he said this, Christians, how much do you have to hate me to not share Jesus with me if you believe I'm going to live forever in hell in torment? How much do you have to hate me to keep Jesus from me? What is God calling you to? The second group, the second option is this. We can trust God, firmly root yourself in his truth. Trust in him resulting in this, loving kindness, gladness, rejoicing, and having an upright heart. Would you look at those two things for a moment? Is there really a comparison to the two? What he has to offer is so much greater. He wants what's best for us. And it's not us choosing ourselves. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Acknowledge your sin, and God will forgive you. Make him Lord. You know, you understand, when you look in the Scriptures, you never see it. I've not seen it yet. If you've run across it and you know it, please come show me. But I've never seen it in here where it said, come to Jesus, make him your Savior and Lord. It's always Lord first. Always Lord first. Surrendering our lives to him and saying, I don't know what's best. And I believe that you do. And then receive him as Savior. Make him your Lord. Then receive him as Savior. Trust him. And walk in the freedom that he has provided for you in a life of confession and not in a life of silence. I pray that we can walk in this freedom so that his kingdom can be increased. Let's pray.